So it was at least a couple years ago. I was finishing up a long day. I was in my office, and I heard some some movement in the, the room behind mine, the, con- the conference room, which is right back behind here. And uh, so I went to go look what was going on, and there was our youth pastor, Javier, and our youth intern at the time, Tommy, and they were setting up this big green screen. And I said, hey, what is that? And they said, it's a green screen, and which made me feel stupid for asking what it was. <laughs> like, you mean a green screen? Like, you're going to do a video? And one of those, so I don't know if you know, but green screen, a lot of what you see in movies or even on a newscast, you know, people are standing in front of a green screen, but it looks, because it's a different background, uh, has, you could be anywhere. So they were making an announcement video for the youth group. And they, at one moment, could be flying through outer space because of the background, and the next moment they're standing, uh, you, know, you know, walking on water, or they're, um, you know, in a car chase or something. That you could just, you just stand in front of the screen, and depending on what the backdrop is, it, it looks a little bit different. So, uh, so this is not new technology. Uh, this has been around for a long time. I was, when I was a little kid, in second grade, I think, we went to Epcot Center. It was a big deal for our family to take this trip. And we went to the uh, figment of imagination thing. And we, me and my sisters, you know, there's pictures of us, you know, running away from wild animals on the screen behind us. And they were doing this whole thing. So, I mean, it's been around for a long time, but now it's everywhere. And even, you know, a youth pastor can make videos, you know, where he's flying through space. And uh, my daughter, Shannon, is 10 years old. They have green screen in their school, in the elementary school. And they do news broadcasts, and they do all these crazy videos. And it's, it's just, uh, the technology has come a long way. It's very accessible. And if you watch an old movie, and for me, that's one of the first things I notice of old, and I love some of the old movies, but I watch them, and I'm like, man, that background is not very convincing. You know, they're riding in the car, but it's sort of the wrong like, time of day, or they're going too fast or too slow, and you just say, man, this is uh, not very entertaining, because now they've got it down you know, with computer imaging and all these things. It looks so realistic. Um, so in our own minds, though, we play out the story of our own life, and uh, what, is the, what is the backdrop of that story? And this parable that Jesus gives is what he's trying to do for his followers is give them a backdrop to give them uh, what is playing out in the background of the scene of your life. And for Jesus, the background that he wants them to see is his second coming. It's, it's the return of the king. The second coming of Jesus is when Jesus returns to this earth and he completes, he brings to consummation, he brings to finality all of God's saving work of, uh, of um, redeeming a sinful and broken world, and he's bringing all that work to completion. And it's, God's, Jesus' second coming is not something that we're just supposed to kind of, you glance at it, and then you get back to the grind of life. Like, oh, wow, that second coming of Jesus is going to be really exciting. It's going to be really intense. It's going to be really good. But today I've got, you know, life. I've got my marriage struggles. I've got pressure at work. I've got all the things I need to do today. And I like sometimes looking at that, but really I'm focused on my day-to-day thing. But, the, but Jesus' intent is that his second coming is not something that's just you kind of think about it every now and then, but this is the thing that forms the backdrop of our lives, where our lives play out today in light of the future. And really, all of the Bible shows um, life happening in light of this glorious climax of life. And this backdrop 
that Jesus gives is not just a, a catastrophic scene. It's not just a, um, where everything gets wiped, everything from before gets wiped out, it gets uh, turned into dust, and it's just, you know, everything from the present and the past is meaningless. It's actually a backdrop that is a victory. It actually includes what's happening now and it, a culmination of it all. So it's a victorious kind of an image. Unlike what's going on with our Boston Red Sox, my goodness, and I don't like to talk sports a lot, but, um, and I get there two and eight, and I am still expecting a victorious kind of a season. But I think some of what's going on, certainly the games in um, Seattle and Oakland, you, you're watching this on TV, if you can stay up that late. I usually fall asleep in like the third inning. But they, they, uh, you're looking at the picture and what's in the background? Empty seats. There's no one there. It's just empty seats everywhere. It's like nobody cares about this. And how can these guys be motivated to compete hard and to do well when nobody cares about it? So that backdrop makes a big difference. And I'm sure when they come home on Tuesday and the backdrop is you know, us you know, cheering them on, they'll do fine. But for, for Jesus, um, he wants us to see this backdrop where evil is being vanquished, where uh, everything is being put right. It's, it's the backdrop which we're going to see our everyday play out, and that's going to be a motivating type of a backdrop, not some you know, empty or, or um, sort of an unmotivating type of a thing. So therefore, so if the background is the second coming, the foreground of that image is our lives. It's the day-to-day the -day investments that we make with, with the resources and the blessings that Jesus has given us. That's in the foreground, and then the background is his second coming. And that's what Jesus is doing for us here, and that's a pretty exciting image. That means that all these things, these little things I do day to day, um, are very important, that nothing is trivial or meaningless, that there's deep meaning to everything I do, even though most days I might think it's meaningless, but it's playing out on this grand stage. And this is the stage where, you know, you have armies of God's angels, you have Jesus on his throne, you have all of his judgment, and, and all these little things that we do today are playing into that same story. That's an exciting image, and I want to explore that for us as we approach God's word. Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, all those gathered in this room. And you've brought us from different places and different reasons to be here. We've come here a very different state of our soul. But Father God, I pray that you would meet us where we're at, that you would help us to see your world correctly, that we would see your word correctly, and that you would teach us in this time. We give ourselves to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, just to orient us a little bit to this uh, account of Jesus, we've been journeying through the Gospel of Luke since just after Christmas. For those of you who have been here, uh, really the week after Christmas, we looked at Jesus when he was a 12-year-old Jesus in the temple, and we've been tracking through uh, Luke's account of Jesus' life. And the last few weeks, we've been roughly going chronologically. We've been hitting chapters 16 through 18 and then chapter 19 today. And the very next thing that happens in this account of Jesus' life is Palm Sunday, which is next week. So things have timed perfectly. Uh, we, we plan it that way, so it's not by accident. And actually, after Easter, we want to circle back because there are some things that we've uh, skipped over for the sake of the calendar which we really want to uh, focus on as a church together. Uh, but that brings us to this account. So Jesus is 
Uh, he's been doing his ministry, and he's, he's heading, he's very near Jerusalem, and he's just about that moment where he enters the city and people start hailing him as a king. And he knows what they're thinking, and he tells this story. And in this story, he paints a picture. He gives us that backdrop for life. And he wants to make sure we have the right backdrop. And uh, these, he paints, he's painting a picture. Three things become really clear as Jesus paints this picture. The first is this, is that Jesus is king in this image. So what was happening is Jesus knows, and we know because in verse 11 it says, um, Jesus knew that um, because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear all at once, he, he told them this story because he knew that's what they were thinking. And Luke is gracious to tell us, you know, sometimes Jesus tells a story and you say, why did Jesus tell that story? Specifically, he knows that those, these people think something's going to go down. It's the time of the Passover, so there's a lot of uh, Jewish people, uh, pilgrims, who are coming to Jerusalem to celebrate this, this holiday. The Romans are on guard because there's a lot of extra people. It gets kind of politically charged. Rome is in control over these Jewish people, and now they're gathering. Jesus' followers, they've seen the miracles. They've seen the healings. They've seen Jesus' power. They now believe that God's kingdom is coming. And Jesus said, the kingdom of God is at hand when he comes on the scene. They're excited, and they think, we're going to go into Rome, and this is all going to go down. There's going to be an uprising. There's going to be a revolt. And the, the Romans who are you know, ruling over us, they're going to be gone and there'll be a whole new day for God's people, for the Jews, and it's going to happen right now. And Jesus wants everybody to know that he is the king, but it's not going to be fulfilled immediately. And he wants them to be clear about that. And he gives them this uh, image of a nobleman who is to be king, but he has to go away and then return as the king to rule as the king. Uh, they wanted an overthrow. They wanted it right away. Um, Jesus says, no, not right away. And uh, so he's, he's the king, even though it's not going to happen right away. And he's the king whether you like it or not. We see this in verse 14 in the story. Where there were those who protested against the king. They didn't want him to be king. And uh, yet... Nonetheless, however, in verse 15, he was made king and he came home to judge and to rule. Even today, there are those who, they, they're okay with Jesus, but they don't want to see him as king. Nah, that's a little too much. You know, Jesus maybe was a good teacher. Jesus maybe even was a prophet. But this whole that Jesus is the king and he's going to come and rule and judge, that's a little too much. I like Jesus' teaching about taking care of of the poor and loving my enemy and, and you know being loving and kind in this world but you know that other stuff is too far but Jesus doesn't leave us that option he wants people to be very clear that he is king and you can either serve him or you can oppose him that is your only options and this morning maybe you're here and perhaps you're just visiting with us or you're just checking this Christian thing out and you say you know I'm not there I do not I'm not sure if I believe that Jesus is actually coming back. Um, I, I like Christian teaching. I like Christians. They seem nice. But I'm not fully in on this thing. If that's you this morning, honestly, the rest of what I'm about to say might even sound silly to you. Uh, it may 
not make sense to you because it's all framed in how Jesus portrayed himself as a king who was going to leave the world and come back to accomplish something. And he wants that to be very clear to us. So the first part of this image in the background is Jesus is king. The second part of the image that is very clear to us is that Jesus' servants then have a great responsibility. Jesus' servants are to be working towards his purposes and what he's entrusted to our care. Verse 13, uh, he says, put this money to work. He gives each servant the same amount of money, uh, one coin, one mina, a, a good amount of money, maybe three months' wages. And he says, you're all getting the same thing, and take this, and I'm gone, but you need to use it. Everybody gets the same opportunity. And I would say that Jesus' servants have this responsibility whether they want it or not. The servant who takes it and he puts it in a piece of cloth, he kind of wraps it up in a handkerchief and kind of puts it away, doesn't want to lose it, uh, just kind of wants to set it aside. Um, it doesn't take any risk. This, is, uh, this does not please the king. It was the two that were willing to use it and make the risk of investment and put it to work. This is, you know, when the king returns, there was great blessing in that. It is, a, it is a great responsibility to have what Jesus has left us with. But what keeps us, I mean, we, uh, in Jesus' day and today, what keeps us from, you know, making that investment for using those things? And it's, it is, it's really like a disease, and we call it SSD. Not STD, that's a different thing. It's also a disease and, and uh, a problematic. But SSD is the sacred secular divide. Um, a, a Christian a pastor, a leader named Mark Green, who, in a lot of what I'm about to say about the SSD, the sacred secular divide, uh, I've been informed by an essay that he wrote about this that I think is brilliant. But basically, he says this. He says, people are settling for a narrower and less radical, less adventurous understanding of what it means to follow Jesus. Uh, SSD, the sacred secular divide, is the idea that some things are really important to God, and then there's everything else. That some time is sacred and really important to God, and then there's like secular time God doesn't really care about. There are um, sacred things that God cares about and other things God doesn't care about. There are people that God really cares about, you know, Christian leaders and uh, holy people, and then there's everyone else that God doesn't really care about. This is not God's plan. This is a disease that keeps us from investing the good things that Jesus has given us. And we can, you know, sacred, secular divide. You could blame the world for it, you know, the rise of uh, modern thinking and postmodernism, and people are very, you know, saying, you know, I'm scientific and, and we can make decisions together without the faith piece. That's really more of a private thing. You should leave it at home. Don't bring it to work. Don't bring it to school. Certainly don't bring it to the government. You know, keep it aside. We need to be uh, more secular together. But you can have your faith. Just leave it at home. That's what we're taught. And that kind of creates this divide. Some people blame consumerism. And they say, well, you know, we live in a world where people are chasing after possessions and property to identify themselves, and they're not identifying themselves in light of how God made them. And so it's creating this just sort of pursuit of material things, and God is getting pushed to the side. Some people blame the media and entertainment. They say, look, 
there's so much communication and there's so much entertainment that people don't really deal with their sin and brokenness. They just entertain themselves. And we can keep blaming the world for this divide between the sacred and the secular. But as we blame the world for that, we got to realize it's, it's not like the gospel of Jesus Christ cannot overcome those things. There is power in the good news of Jesus. There is power in this kingdom to overcome all those things. John Stott said, you can't blame meat for going rotten. That's what meat does. You blame the salt for not being there to preserve. And that's our role to take what Christ has given us. He said, you're the salt to go out into the world and to be a blessing. And here, it's the, the, in Jesus' parable, he says, put this money to work. Do we know how to invest what God has given us into the world around us? And a lot of times we don't. We know how to do it at church. We know how to do church. But how do we do it out there in our everyday? I'll give you some examples of, of how we can get, how we don't know how to do it. Kids, kids who go to school. If you have kids who go to school, as mine do, my kids go to the public schools here in Andover, and they go about 180 days a year. And every, just about every day of school, 180 days a year, they do math every single day for 12 years, math, 180 days. Um, what does God have to do with math? Can you give a biblical perspective on math to your children? Does God care about math? I believe he does, and I believe I could explain these things to my children. I don't think I ever have. So uh, for 12 years, 180 days a year, for an hour a day, they don't understand where God is in math. And I have work to do. So this week's going to be fun for them because <laughs> I can explain this uh, to them that God cares about something even as mundane as math or something as exciting as math, depending on your, your background. Um, what about sports? Our kids play sports and they go for hours and train gymnastics and soccer and all these things. D what, is God, what is God's understanding of sports and recreation and competition? Do our children even know that? Or do I just, you know, as I often do, just drop my daughter, have a great practice at gymnastics? Where is God in that? Because God cares about all things. Or we could just divide it out, okay, that's secular time. When we have sacred time, when you're at youth group, it'll make more sense. But we want to bridge these things. We want to cross that divide. Example, for workers. Some of you have jobs. Praise God. That's a good thing. How does, how does your work that you do, your job, how does that intersect with God's work? What does God think about cybersecurity or electrical engineering or law, or sales, or real estate, or does God care about the work that you do? There was a person who once said, not, not in this church, but in another context, someone once said, well, the church cares a lot about the offering that I put in the plate, but I'm not sure they care a whole lot about the work that went into gaining that wealth that I can be generous with. Does God care about these things? And I say yes, jobs and creativity and goods and services that people need and making the world a better place and finding discovery and good. Any legitimate work uh, can be glorifying to God, that God cares a lot about work. Legitimate work. We had a guy once, I've told you the story, but he was, he, he was a beverage distributor and he was distributing this beverage. It was like um, 
uh, energy drink, but with a lot of alcohol in it. And uh, he knew that it was being uh, distributed mostly to college students, and you would drink it and get completely drunk, but tons of energy, so you just drink more and more of it. It was a terrible product. And he said, you know what, I think God maybe doesn't want me to sell this anymore. So he quit his job. And the next week, the FDA banned the product. It's illegal. It's so terrible that even the government said, we cannot have people selling this product. Anyway, but all legitimate work and legitimate products and services. And maybe you're not even sure. That's something to, to ask about. OK, uh, maybe you work at home. If you are a stay-at-home parent, do you consider your calling by God to be a stay-at-home parent a high calling? Do you consider that an important uh, time of disciple making? Do you believe that you are just as valuable in God's kingdom, that your work is just as valuable to God as the work of a pastor, as my work? Do you believe that? Because it is. Your work as a disciple-making parent is just as important as anything I could ever do here. And do you believe that? See, we've both been given one mina, and our minas are different, but we're both to use them for the kingdom. Maybe you're retired. There's some retired people here. Praise God for retirement. But do you feel like your work for Jesus is something that is complete and that you have now uh, hand the work of, of God's kingdom over to the younger generation? Uh, if you think that, I, I encourage you to think again and ask the question, how might my life skills and the relationships that I have uh, make an impact for God's kingdom even beyond the walls of this church and the programs of this church, how can that continue even in my retired years? What unique opportunities are before me for God's kingdom? And just in summary, all the resources of life, we work with God to make the world a better place, to, to, to build into that. And this is uh, what, what, what Jesus wants us to see is that, look, in the background of your life is him completing all the work, but in the foreground is us in our everyday doing these things. They're for a greater purpose, and it, it glorifies God. And many of you here are doing it. Praise God that this way of life is being caught on in this church. I talked to a guy last week, and he said, Hey, Pastor, I've you know, been kind of short on money, so I've been Uber driving to make more money. God is using my Uber driving to extend his kingdom in the world, and it's happening every single day, and I've got to sit down and tell you the stories how God is working through my Uber driving. I had another guy a short time ago. He said, uh, I, I, I showed up to work, and I was just asking God, God, what am I doing today? Why am I doing this work? Why am I here? And he could tell the, the, the woman in the cube next to him was really struggling, and he, he thought he heard her crying. He wanted to go and offer her prayer. He thought that might come across a little creepy. So he got another coworker who is also a Christian, and, and they sat down together, the three of them, and said, hey, we, are you okay? We can see something's up. How, how can, and they listened to her. They said, can we pray for you? And they were able to pray for her in a way that was very well-received. She cried, said, thank you for caring for me, for praying for me. There's opportunities that are opening up uh, one after another for people. If you feel stuck in this, and I, if you're not even sure where to start, ask these questions. Where have I seen God at work here? in your everyday, wherever God has you. What is God teaching me? How is he changing me? What do I sense he might be doing around me? And how does my faith in God, God who, for all things are possible for, 
How does my faith in God um, change how I view my everyday? And if you start asking those questions and making those investments, you could have a more effective ministry than, than me. A Christian who is a secretary might have the opportunity to pastor more people than a pastor in any given day. A nurse may have more opportunities to offer wisdom and comfort to people who are suffering than, than I could ever do in any given day or week. A 14-year-old student at school might have more opportunities to share Jesus than a full-time paid youth pastor who went to Bible college. You see, as we all make these investments with the blessings God has given us, it's, it, it, God is using it to, be, to, be, to multiply greatly. And again, if this is not easy, what I'm describing, but we have God's spirit to lead us in this. We have great opportunity in this life, and in the life to come. Even if we lose, even if we suffer because of this way of life, we, we get the, the blessing in the life to come. Sometimes in this life, but certainly as we see it playing out in, at the end of time, the blessing is there. So this picture Jesus paints, he's the king, we have a great responsibility, and lastly, the last part of this picture is that Jesus will judge and again, for the Jewish people of Jesus' day, they thought it was just going to be an immediate political victory. Jesus said, the scope of my ministry is way more than that. It's not just about Rome. It's not just getting rid of Rome's oppression. It's getting rid of all oppression, all evil, all sin will be destroyed. And he judges. There's three groups that get judged. There's those who made the investment. There was great reward in that. You made that small investment. Take charge of cities. It was the one who didn't invest. Hey, even what you had, I'm taking it away. You, you, don't experience, you didn't get to experience the blessing of using what I gave you. Completely missed out on it. And then there were those who opposed the king. And he says, those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king, bring them here and kill them in front of me. Um, there's no uncertain terms there. Um, this is, the sh this is a very sharp dividing line in the story here. The most important thing is to answer the question, is Jesus Lord or not? Because if he is, I have a great responsibility and he will judge. Uh, if, if Jesus is not the Lord of your life, then what is the backdrop of your life? Why do you do the things you do? Why, what, why do you work so hard? What, what frames your life? Um, why do you do what you do every day? What is the purpose of it? And, and again, here we go with judgment again. And there's those who say, oh, JP, you and Pastor Brian, you love judgment. You guys are always talking about judgment. And I say, well, you know what? I, I do love judgment because I hate evil. And I hate the evils of this world, and I hate suffering, and I'm sick of injustice, and I'm sick of seeing abuse, and I'm sick, I'm sick of all these things, and I want it all played out. I want to see the end of time when God restores all things to himself. And I want to be part of that today, and I want to see it in its fullness in the future. And, and God judges like, like nothing else, like no other judgment you've ever known, because the verdict in God's judgment is guilty, and the sentence is death, but the judge himself takes off the robe, 
Jesus takes on human flesh and he goes to the cross and he takes the punishment that every single human deserves. We have all fallen short of this standard. We have all rejected him as king in various ways. Yet, he in our place takes that punishment and all we have to do is put our faith in him, trust in him, and we receive his blessing. Now, that, that faith can, uh, will look different how you live it out for you than it will look for me on any given day. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus told almost the same parable at a, at a different time. And basically he said, the faith that I'm looking for is really, it's just small things. Small acts of obedience. It's, it's a glass of water given in my name. It's food given to someone who's hungry. It's hospitality for someone who needs it. It's lived out in small acts of love and faith every day. And the people who were doing it didn't even realize they were doing it at times. But that's how we respond in faith in our everyday. Let us pray. Father God, I pray that you would help us to catch the vision for this way of life. Help us to see uh, our now in light of eternity. And how what we do today with what you've given us will be fulfilled and made perfect in eternity. And that you are good and you are just and that you, you allow us to have faith in you, Lord. I thank you and I praise you for those who have embraced this way of life, for the beautiful fruit that they're seeing and the investments they've made in their world. We pray that they would see even more of it, and I pray more hearts would be turned uh, to give you glory in this way, that it might even change our land. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.